For our sermon text today, then, turn to Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. As we come to this passage, you'll remember that God has made a covenant with Abraham and his household. He's promised to give Abraham a blessed fellowship with God, offspring, land, and worldwide blessing through Abraham. In chapter 17, this covenant was sealed with the sign of circumcision that was Uh, given as a sign of this covenant, and more details were added, such as that the child of promise would come through Sarah. Of course, they were also renamed in the last chapter, Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. Uh, And so this, what takes place in chapter 18 probably takes place not very long after that occasion, which Abraham circumcised the men of his household. Uh, He was 99 then, and we'll find when Isaac is born, he was 100. So this is all taking place now rather quickly after having skipped 13 years after Ishmael's birth before chapter 17. But let me go ahead now and read Genesis 18, 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a son now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for your promises, and we thank you for drawing near to us. We thank you for preserving this word to us, giving us contact with it today. We pray that it would be a blessing to us, that your word would be faithfully proclaimed, received in our hearts, and laid up there 
that we would remember these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I realized we had daylight savings recently, so I wouldn't blame you if you're a little sleepy this morning after missing an hour. So let's uh, give a special attention to stay alert and to listen to uh, what is given to us in this chapter, chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 15. Uh, We'll look at the rest of the chapter next week as the attention turns to Sodom and Gomorrah. In chapter 19, we'll find a visit by two of these same men that are called angels there as they come to Lot. And Lot is going to give a very similar welcome, although there's others who will give a very opposite type of welcome to these strangers uh, unto their condemnation. But uh, first, these three show up to Abraham and Sarah. And in this, these 15 verses, we find two things in particular. I know usually I'm supposed to have like one big idea. I mean, we have two big ideas here uh, in today's sermon. But it's the hospitality of Abraham and Sarah and the promise of their visitor. There is the service demonstrated by Abraham and Sarah as they put their, their faith to work, uh, showing uh, virtue and godliness in providing generous hospitality. And then the perhaps surprising promise, or at least uh, wondrous promise, of the visitor that has come to them uh, that the next year Sarah would have a son when he visits her again that she would conceive and, and then bear a son. It, it probably shouldn't have been too surprising, at least for Abraham. He had received this promise in chapter 17, and yet uh, was still uh, incredible to hear it. Let's begin, though, with the hospitality of Abraham and Sarah, beginning with verse 1 through 8. <clears throat> the virtue of hospitality in chapter 18 and 19 uh, marks the believing. It marks the godly one. Uh, what do they do? They show hospitality. Even without knowing who these were at first, they, they show hospitality to strangers. Uh, this contrast is, contrasts with the wickedness of Sodom, who not only don't show hospitality, but then seek violence and uh, sexual immorality and uh, worse things. So they, uh, what marks the godly ones, though? They welcome the stranger, and they Uh, grant them generous hospitality. Later on, Israel would be told to be hospitable to strangers, to the sojourner in the land, remembering that they were strangers in the land of Egypt, that as God had been generous to them and had welcomed them, that they were to be also welcoming uh, to the stranger, to include them in their feasts, and uh, certainly uh, hoping also that they would come to the God of Abraham too. Uh, But they were to be welcoming to strangers, to show hospitality. And this is emphasized in the New Testament as well. In fact, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is likely thinking of this very occasion in chapter 18 when he wrote, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. It doesn't necessarily mean that you should expect you know, it's common for angels to show up to your house, but uh, first, a couple things could probably be said about it. First, it shows the importance that God puts on it, that he would test people in such a way uh, that uh, it could be angels unawares that the person was hosting. The second, that they were such strangers that 
that they could have, that they were unawares that they were angels? Have, have you shown hospitality to people that, you know, theoretically could be angels, that you don't know that much about them uh, before you welcome them? Um, but then, of course, not only have some in the past entertained angels unawares by showing hospitality to strangers and being blessed accordingly, but Jesus said that as you show hospitality to my brothers, even to the least of them, that that is shown to me. When did you welcome me and receive me when I was a stranger? Uh, when you did so to the least of these my brothers, Matthew 25. Or earlier in Matthew, it said, the one who receives you receives me. Uh, the word there, receive, is often used for hospitality, to receive in, to welcome in. Uh, even if it's just a cup of cold water to one of my disciples, this is shown uh, to Jesus Christ. So, uh, ought to be an encouragement. In fact, when Jesus sent out his disciples uh, in Matthew 10, he said, don't bring along stuff with you. Uh, show up and, and uh, seek hospitality in that city. And whether not only them listening to you, but them receiving you was uh, a sign whether they, they would be, be blessed or be cursed. If they do not receive you, shake the dust off the feet of that house. Uh, if they do not listen to you, leave, leave that town. Uh, but the people who were to receive these messengers, uh, these preachers of the gospel, uh, were to show their reception by receiving these strangers, to show hospitality. In Third John, uh, John uh, encourages the, uh, the saints for showing hospitality to the brothers who had come to him, but also uh, noted that there was a man, Diotrephes, who had not shown uh, hospitality to uh, the saints and who had actually sought to stop others from showing such hospitality. So hospitality is throughout Old and New Testament a uh, strong theme of something that should be shown. Hospitality to, to friends, certainly, as um, the church would share among another one another according to their needs, uh, living with one another. Think of the early church in Jerusalem, but otherwise as well. Uh, so hospitality to friends, but also to strangers, uh, to those that they do not know much about uh, as these strangers show up to Abraham, and all the more to strangers who are also Christians. First uh, Peter 4 speaks of showing hospitality to strangers to one another, uh, that there are certainly Christians who are strangers to us in one sense. Hospitality, as we see here in Abraham's case, uh, usually involves uh, sharing food, uh, sharing fellowship, uh, giving rest, giving shelter. Uh, these are traditional ways of showing hospitality, especially to those who are uh, traveling or in need of these things. <clears throat> and while this was very important in the ancient world, it's something that is still practiced and should be practiced today. Now, the reader of Genesis 18 is told at the very beginning that the Lord appeared to Abram by the oaks of Mamre. The Lord appeared to Abram by the oaks of Mamre. One way or another, it's a little mysterious on the details, but it was the Lord who was speaking, who was giving this message, who is appearing to Abram. But that the reader knows that. Abram didn't necessarily know that. In verse uh, 2, it begins to show you what Abram saw. He saw three men. Uh, that's what they looked like. Uh, they, they weren't literally men, but that's the language of appearance. 
three men were all of a sudden in front of him. He lifted up his eyes, and they were there. And so before, he, before they speak, before he asks them questions, uh, he seeks to show hospitality. Uh, he welcomes them. He tries hard to convince them to stay. Is that what you would have done if you saw the three men uh, there as you sat in the heat of the day? He probably had been working earlier and come back to rest at the door of his tent, and he sees these three strangers. Look how eager he is. Everything is done quickly. He runs to meet them. He runs to meet them and and bows himself to the earth, and he speaks very humbly toward them. It would be such a privilege to to show hospitality to these people because they had given him the blessing of coming to his house. He tries to convince them to stay. He says, it would, would not be a, a problem for me. He, he understates what he does. The, the contrast is almost, uh, almost funny that he says, a little, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and I'll bring a morsel of bread. <laughs> a morsel of bread. Then he tells Sarah to make three seahs of fine flour, which, which we'll get to is, a, is liters and liters. Is lots of flour, much more than a little morsel of bread. Why is he doing that? He's trying to convince them to stay. It would not be a problem for me. Come and stay with me. I'll bring you bread, some water, um, and you can rest a little bit, and then you can go on. And so they said, uh, do as you have said. And so he offers washing for their feet, because their feet would get filthy as they travel in their sandals, and give them rest under the shade of the tree. We'll notice that they're eating under the shade of the tree. The tent must have been right next to the tree the oak of, Mor- of Mamre, and offers them food. And then Abram, after receiving the, the okay from these strangers, rushes quickly. He goes quickly into the tent to Sarah. And then what does he tell her to do? Quick, prepare the food. Let us, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And then verse 7, Abraham ran to the herd. He doesn't just walk over there. He's, he's running. You know, people probably aged slower at the time because Abraham lives quite a long time, but he is 100 years old at the time. Uh, he's not necessarily a young man, and yet he's, he's running now out to the herd to find the calf uh, to prepare. He gives the calf to a young man, and what does he tell the young man to do? The young man prepared it quickly. He also shares this enthusiasm uh, to care for these visitors. <clears throat> and then Abraham, though he is somewhat of a, uh, a prince of, of many as a large household, but he himself uh, does not see this beneath him. He took the curds and the milk, probably a, a yogurt-type substance, and, and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and so the meat, and he set it before the strangers. And then Abraham stood by them under the tree while they ate. So he's waiting upon them, ready to, to talk with them, but also to minister to their needs, to help them. And so Abraham shows himself to be very hospitable, showing hospitality to these strangers uh, who have barely said anything. Do as you have said. That's all that's recorded so far uh, by verse 8. And so to begin with, uh, men follow the example of Abraham. Abraham as you see in this text, led his household well. He was, first of all, quite diligent himself. He sprang into action. 
He wasn't directing things, uh, you know, from the couch while he watched TV and tell everyone else to do all the work. Uh, he, he was setting an example by his own work uh, to, to do things. Uh, but then he also delegated responsibilities to others. Didn't uh, take it all on himself. He was able to direct the, the household and its work, giving responsibilities to other people. He tells his wife to make the bread. He tells the servant to prepare the calf, gives them their areas of responsibility, and, and they do so. And so imitate the example of Abraham here to uh, have your household in order such that if three strangers were to show up, that you'd be able to, to show hospitality to lead them in the practice of godliness, like showing hospitality to strangers, for example, uh, to, to get the household on mission to serve others, uh, to do good to others, to minister to others, that your household might be a blessing. A man is to give direction and vision to the household and to bring the whole household along, not just his own personal task, but to bring them along, to lead them into showing hospitality, for example, and other uh, things of godliness, and to delegate responsibilities to that end. All right, we want you to do this. I want you to do that. Um, not to micromanage everything necessarily, but to, to give direction and clarity. With hospitality in particular, it's not just for women to do. Uh, hospitality, certainly a lot of the, the work is, is uh, traditionally done by women, but hospitality is something for men to be involved with as well. When Paul describes the marks of a mature man qualified to be an elder, it says that he must be hospitable. I once asked that of, of uh, Pastor Servan when I was interning. So, so the, the man's supposed to be hospitable. How, how do I do that? It's, it's not just for the women to do. Uh, Abraham sets an example here. He takes the initiative. He reaches out. He leads the household in this way and is personally active in it as well. So share and welcome, reach out. But Sarah also shows up in this passage. Abraham shows an example of enthusiasm and eagerness and leading his household in this way. Sarah also sets an example in these first eight verses of obedience to her husband and honor to him and diligence in hospitality. We read earlier from 1 Peter 3, where uh, perhaps we're thinking of this passage, or more generally of Sarah, as she's presented in Genesis, that she sets an example of one of those holy women of old, uh, who hoped in God, who adorned themselves uh, with a quiet and gentle spirit, with the the inner person, the uh, imperishable beauty within, uh, that she obeyed uh, her husband. That's how she submitted to him, uh, by obeying Abraham and also by calling him Lord, uh, honoring him in her words. And we actually find that in this, later in this passage, where she calls Abraham in verse 12, my Lord. Um, notice it's not necessarily a comment that is intended to be flattering of him. She's saying it to herself, and she's also saying that my Lord is old. But that just shows how typical it was for her. That's what she called her husband, my Lord. And Peter brings that out. As an example, you women uh, are the children of Sarah, daughters of Sarah. If you, like her, do good, do not fear anything that is frightening. Uh, certainly, Sarah would have had occasions throughout their life to, to fear things that were frightening. There was a bit of uncertainty in this whole kind of crazy mission going out into Canaan and just following the promises of God. 
but she uh, followed, and she uh, continued to uh, follow the lead of her husband, Abraham. And on this occasion, she obeys her husband. He says, knead the flour, make the cakes. And she makes cakes with three sias of fine flour, kneading it, baking it. Now, a sia was about seven quarts, and there were three of them. Uh, and that's just the flour. So this is quite a bit of bread that she is uh, working on. Abraham tells her to do so, and she doesn't complain. She uh, gets to work in the tent. And that's what she's doing when Abraham is talking with the messengers. Notice Abraham brings out the curds and milk and the meat. It seems that Sarah was still working on the bread in the tent. And then later she's talking with the strangers. Perhaps she was bringing the bread out to them at that point. Uh, But she is getting to work on what Abraham uh, told her to do, taking charge of that responsibility, taking dominion of her part of the household. Sarah also, like I said, honored her husband by customarily calling him my Lord. Wives, consider how you show honor to your husband uh, in the way you speak to him and about him. Uh, Might not be as typical today to use the exact words, my Lord. Nothing forbidden that you wouldn't have to use it. But uh, consider how you would apply that principle uh, today, uh, how to cultivate respect just in your normal conversation from day to day, uh, not just in the great and pivotal places where you, you know, there's a disagreement and you have to submit. Just know the normal attitude of life. How, how do we make that uh, the, ad, the, the habit? Now, also, Sarah participates in the work of hospitality. Uh, she uh, joins in this work and she serves their guests. And so is uh, working in the tent while Abraham is out on the front line standing uh, with the strangers who had visited. And so as men ought to look to Abraham in this instance as an example, women follow the example of Sarah to honor your husband, to fulfill your responsibilities he entrusts to you, and to, with him, make your household a blessing to others, to join in this mission and to show hospitality. When Paul, again, this is very much in line with the New Testament as well, when he describes a widow who was godly, who had proven her worth while she was married, what does he list as characteristics of the godly woman? He says, If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Uh, this is uh, the, the marks of, of the mature woman, uh, even as we saw hospitality among the marks of the mature man who would be uh, qualified to be an elder. So for men and women, and children too, are part of the household, right? All of us should be uh, eager in well-doing, to not be sluggish, but to share this enthusiasm, to, to do it, to do it eagerly, to do it quickly, to not be slow to serve others uh, with the gifts that you have been given. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, and serve the Lord. So we see an example of hospitality, of sharing their goods with others in chapter 18, and, and 
enjoying that fellowship and bond of fellowship over a meal. But then things get very interesting in verse 9 through 15. These are not ordinary visitors. It turns out uh, they know quite a bit already about Abraham and Sarah. They are not a strangers to the strangers. Because they said to him, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And so we're already getting the sense that these people uh, know quite a bit. Um, technically, in verse 10, the word Lord is not used yet. It just says he. Uh, but the word Lord is going to be used <clears throat> in verse 13. Earlier, Abraham had called them Lord, uh, Adonai, uh, just the word for Lord. But now in verse 13, when it says the Lord, that's the word Jehovah, or, or you know, speaking of God, as it was the Lord appearing to him by the oaks of Mamre. Uh, whether somehow he was manifesting his presence and words through the three angels, or whether two of them were angels and the other one was some type of uh, physical temporary manifestation of God, which is the more typical explanation, uh, one way or another, God was appearing to Abraham and giving him the promise that, as we'll find later, it was God who visited Sarah and uh, allowed her to have conception and later would have a child. So these words, this promise was from the Lord himself. And the point here in verses 9 through 15 is to believe God, to believe his promises for nothing is too hard for him. And this is something that Sarah uh, would learn and grow in through this encounter. First, they ask the question, where is Sarah, your wife? So obviously they're special strangers. Uh, they, they, they knew her name. And they ask about her, and Abraham tells her she is in the tent. And then they give a promise, knowing that Sarah was within earshot, because I don't know if you know, but tents don't have a grade of you know, blocking sound. You, you can hear through them pretty easily. Knowing that she could hear them, uh, the Lord gives the promise, and with greater detail, that not only will Sarah have the promised child, but it will be when, when I visit you next year. You will... Uh, have a son, something recounted in chapter 21, verses 1 through 2. So the promised child, the key to the fulfillment of all these other promises, you know, to inheriting the land, to blessing the nations, to having abundant offspring, to, uh, to even have that blessed fellowship with God would depend on the Christ who would descend from this promised child. This promised child, uh, the uh, Isaac, the ancestor of Christ, would come next year from Sarah. But there was a problem. You know, Sarah is listening at the tent door behind him, and, you know, so the stranger can't see her. But she was old, and Abraham too. Uh, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, and so it would seem to be difficult to uh, understand that she would have a child the next year. Uh, Sarah had uh, lost the monthly cycle that makes pregnancy possible. And uh, she had been barren even in her younger years. And so it seemed even more impossible now uh, that uh, she was older. Again, people probably age slower at that time, so it's important that Scripture adds that detail. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Uh, that time had ended for her. And yet there was this comment, this promise from this stranger that she would bear a child the next year, her, her body had shut down the reproductive function. And so Sarah laughs. We have the laugh. Sarah laughs to herself. 
After, am I, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? In other words, shall I have a child? Interesting connection, right? Way to refer to having a child. And so she laughs to herself. But the laugh doesn't stay private. Because then we have the correction of this doubt. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. I'm not sure what Abraham thought of that. Why did my wife laugh to herself in the tent? I, I don't know, but you know, he's, he's speaking to Sarah through Abraham uh, to, to comment upon what she had done. Uh, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard or literally too wonderful for the Lord? He then repeats the promise. No, this thing is certain. This is uh, a divine promise. This is something that the Lord will accomplish. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Obviously, no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Well, then Sarah fears. Sarah realizes that this stranger knew her thoughts, knew, knew what she was doing in the tent, and uh, brought up a really good point, obviously, as well. And so she realizes she has been discovered. She is afraid. She realizes the laughing was wrong. And so she denies that she laughed. All right, well, it's probably not going to be a very effective cover-up, knowing what she knows about these strangers. But uh, she says, no, I, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But at least she realizes that you know, wasn't the right response, uh, this type of laugh of hesitation and doubt. And so one more thing happens, the correction of her falsehood. Not only the correction of her hesitation and doubt, but the correction of her falsehood. The Lord corrects Sarah again, no, but you did laugh. You did laugh. Sarah uh, does not have any comeback to that. Uh, I think that silence should be understood as an agreement with the Lord. Hebrews 11, verse 11, says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And so, uh, she received power to conceive by faith. Uh, She uh, just, you know, corrected by uh, the Lord, uh, was, was brought to faith or to a firmer faith in God's promise, and so by faith received power con- to conceive. And her laughing would be significant, because we remember what Isaac means. It means he laughs. It's this laughter. In fact, the word Isaac basically is in the text as they say, she laughed. Why did she laugh? She, I did not laugh, but you did laugh. We're basically saying, Isaac, 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 over and over again in the conversation. Um, and in the end, God would have the last laugh you could say, or people would laugh with joy. Uh, and Sarah remarks that once Isaac is born, a different kind of laughter, a laughter of joy at such an incredible thing that had come to pass through the Lord's power. And so in applying this uh, we, you, you are not Sarah, you don't necessarily have this particular promise to you, but uh, it is a lesson for all of us to believe God's promises, knowing that nothing is too hard for him. That doesn't mean you can be confident he's going to do whatever you want him to do, even if he hasn't told you about it. You know, I feel confident God's going to let me be able to fly without any assistance, because nothing's too hard for him. Well, he could make you fly, but he never told you he would. 
uh, but rather to realize that nothing is too hard for him. He can find a way through whatever circumstances he has ordained to, to do what is good, what is good for you, that he will fulfill his promises, that you can appeal to his word and trust it uh, with confident hope and expectation that nothing will be too hard for him. If he has said it, he will do it. You do not judge by sight, by the circumstances you see around you, as Sarah saw circumstances around her that made these things seem impossible, but rather to judge by his word and to judge by his power. And so, believe God's promises to you personally, promises of salvation. Believe that he gives salvation freely in Jesus Christ, the God who became man, who died and rose again. That's an incredible message, but is anything too hard for the Lord? He has spoken, he has done it, and he will uh, save sinners by it. He freely offers it to all, uh, that whoever believes in Christ will be saved and have eternal life. Believe that nothing will separate you from God's love in Christ. Nothing, not even death itself. You can believe that. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Believe that he will take you to himself at death and raise you up to glory on the last day. Those things are past our experience. None of us know what it's like to die. None of us know what it would be like to bring bodies back to life, even after they have turned to dust. None of us know what it's like for the world to be transformed for Christ to return. These things are not things to be judged by sight, but is anything too hard for the Lord who brought all things out of nothing by his word? No, God will fulfill his promises. He will see to it and accomplish what he has spoken for you. Are these things too hard? Not too hard for the Lord. And believe God's promises also of raising up his church, blessing the nations, not just for you personally, but for the peoples, for the world, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Uh, The sociologists will have their approach to judging the future of the church, might have a few observations that are helpful, but we can be confident, regardless of what sight tells us, that the gates of hell will not prevail, because that is what Jesus said. His church shall endure from generation to generation believe that those who are dead in sin and trespasses shall be made alive in Christ through the gospel. Does that seem hard to believe? People that are not saved right now, who are not Christians, who didn't perhaps never grew up as a Christian, uh, that might be opposed to it, that God can convert them, that God will convert some who are in that condition, making them alive in Christ through means that seem foolish in the eyes of the world, through a message about what happened for sinners, the gospel. Believe that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through Christ. That's the promise to Abraham. If it seems incredible to us now, it seemed all the more to Abraham at the time. And yet we have already begun to see it being fulfilled, and it shall be fulfilled, that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through Jesus Christ that all the nations shall flow to the house of God and seek salvation and discipleship, as Isaiah 2 prophesies. The Great Commission was not given in vain, uh, but that Christ is with his church so that it might be fulfilled. Believe that the kingdom shall grow like a mustard tree 
and like leaven, fill the earth. These are not things that we would expect by sight, but by the word of God. Is anything too hard for him? He can move nations. He can remove them. He can convert them. Uh, He is the one who is almighty. So are these things too hard? Not too hard for the Lord. We read Isaiah 49 earlier. There, Jerusalem, portrayed as a mother, Mother Jerusalem is surprised by the sudden increase of her children, that is, of the people of God. Where did these children come from? Who has borne me these children? I, I was barren, I was exiled, I was cast off, I was like dead, but then all of a sudden there's all these children, I have to find room for all of them. And that's the prophecy of Isaiah 49. When things seem unlikely, when things seem barren and, and dead, God brings his people to life supernaturally in a way that is unexpected. The Lord has done great things for us. Even the heathen were agreed. And we saw that historically in the return from the exile. See that in the New Testament where even on the day of Pentecost, thousands come to faith in Jesus Christ. God is yet able to accomplish his promises by supernatural increase of his church. Every increase of his church is supernatural uh, by the work of his grace. And we might say with Mother Jerusalem, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and bare and exiled and put away. Who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Of course, they have come from the Lord God. So God brings life from the dead, brings children from the barren womb. He brings a numerous church from a lost world. He brings revived church from the ashes of apostasy. God's work is not too wonderful for him. It's not too hard for him. But it is marvelous in our eyes. It is wonderful for us to behold. Do not laugh at his wondrous promises. Perhaps laugh with joy. Rejoice in fear and awe at God's great works that he has done and will do. The stone that the builders rejected has in fact become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The most marvelous work was when Christ rose from the dead. Was anything too hard for the Lord? No, he rose him, raised him up from the dead, sins abolished in the grave, uh, unto life and glory for his people. This is our God. And so, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Receive his promises like Mother Sarah, Father Abraham. Uh, Let us imitate their generosity, their hospitality, walking in the ways of the faith of our uh, father and mother, Abraham and Sarah, showing hospitality to the stranger, not growing weary and well-doing, but showing enthusiasm and eagerness to do good to others, to serve others, and to do so because there is hope that God has given us promises, that we ought to believe God's promises firmly because nothing is too hard for the Lord. To him be all the glory and praise. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for the work that you have done in days of old. We thank you for demonstrating your power and faithfulness in the accomplishment of your promises through Abraham, through Israel, into the days of the apostles, particularly through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would strengthen our faith that we might have hope and be steadfast in this hope, immovable, unshakable, and that we might 
therefore be free to, to love and to be generous and to share, that we might do good ourselves and our households. We pray that you would lead us and guide us away from sin and that which tears down our households or churches and, and ourselves, but rather that you would build us up in your ways of love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.